It's Friday, May 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. How many times have you gone to McDonald's for a nice frozen treat, only to be told that the ice cream machine is broken? One couple attempted to get to the bottom of why the Taylor ice cream machines that McDonald's uses are always breaking, and found that there's a secret repair menu that most workers don't know how to access, which forces them to contact the manufacturer for maintenance. This couple eventually created a way to hack the machines, only to have Taylor and McDonald's stop them. Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired, joins us for the fight over hacking McDonald's ice cream machines. Next, some 2020 election ballots are still being counted in Arizona. This is coming in the form of an unofficial recount and audit of the 2.1 million votes cast in Maricopa County. The Justice Department has signaled that the recount may violate federal law, and the Arizona Secretary of State has said that other problems have also been noticed, such as ballots left unattended on counting tables. The audit is being run by Florida-based contractor Cyber Ninjas, who have been employing unorthodox practices such as checking ballots with UV light. Rosalind Helderman, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for this recount that many Trump allies are keeping a close watch on. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When it works well, it's it's an incredible display of efficiency, and they can put out like 10 ice cream cones in a minute with one of these things. But they just break constantly because they're very fragile and finicky and over-engineered. Joining us now is Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Glad to be here. You wrote a very interesting story about the McDonald's ice cream machines. They're always broken. They're the butt of jokes on social media. There's tons of memes about it. There's websites dedicated to trying to find out which machines are working and when. There's so much interest surrounding these ice cream machines. But there's this secret code that is actually on the machines. And you can get into the machines, kind of see all the inner workings, uh, details about what might be wrong. But there's this whole ecosystem where McDonald's buys these machines from a company called Taylor. They don't really put any of these types of codes in the instruction manuals. So the franchisees that buy these machines are often left to Taylor and their distributors to come out and fix them. And you profile a man in your story. His name is Jeremy O'Sullivan, who created this hack to get into the machines, let these people know what's wrong with the machines. And it just started this whole war between McDonald's, Taylor, and Jeremy O'Sullivan and his partner. It's a really great story, Andy. So tell us a little bit about it. Well, yeah. Um, Jeremy O'Sullivan, who is one of the co-founders of this little company that you referenced called Kitch, K-Y-T-C-H, he and his partner, Melissa Nelson, they basically observed that there was this terrible problem with McDonald's ice cream machines. And I just checked, it actually, the number of McDonald's ice cream machines that are broken today in the U.S., well, it's about 8%, which is enormous for a fast food chain. But in in New York City, where I live, it's 20%. Like one in five New York City McDonald's ice cream machines are offline right now, according to McBroken.com, which is a site that tracks this really closely. So this is a real a real issue. And this little tiny company, I mean, it's basically just Melissa and Jeremy, to be honest. Uh, or at some point, they started to grow. And then thanks to McDonald's and Taylor's efforts, they have kind of been squashed. But their goal was to sell this tiny device to let you hack a McDonald's ice cream machine. And this was something that they were selling to franchisees, the owners of McDonald's restaurants, to put inside of their Taylor ice cream machine. And essentially, it would intercept all the data inside of it and then send it out to you know, a web interface or an app. 
and allow you to kind of monitor the conditions of the machine and prevent it from breaking. And it works really well, according to a lot of the franchisees that I spoke to who had been using it. But then, as you might imagine, Taylor, the ice cream machine maker, was not happy about this. And McDonald's, their kind of corporate ally, uh, together, these two companies essentially went after a kitchen and destroyed their business, more or less. Right. So I tried to tell the story here of this kind of you know, two-year-long war between these massive fast food superpowers and this tiny little company. And Kitsch is now essentially just starting to counterattack, and they're planning a lawsuit against some of the franchisees who gave their device to Taylor for it to be analyzed, and then also likely Taylor itself and maybe even McDonald's too. Right. Let, okay, let's take a little step back and talk about the machines because O'Sullivan, the way he puts it, he says it's kind of a shakedown. Franchisees really have very limited information on how to monitor the device. That's why you have to call out the distributors and to come and fix them. So Taylor will sell these franchisees this complicated machine. It's very fragile. They don't give them all the information on how to fix it or why it's constantly being broken. Distributors come out and fix it and everybody makes a lot of money on that front. So that's kind of how it goes. But let's talk about the machines themselves because they are pretty sophisticated on one front, super simple on another front. And I guess O'Sullivan kind of said they're kind of like an Italian sports car. When they're working perfectly, they work great, but any little tiny thing that breaks down, then it becomes a huge mess. So let's talk about why these machines are so special. Well, that wasn't actually Jeremy who said that. That was this other source who calls him or herself McDee Truth, and they're an anonymous okay. yeah. Twitter account that basically analyzes McDonald's secrets. And is also they are also a franchise franchisee themselves, and so they know a lot about how these restaurants operate. And yeah, McDee Truth was the one who described it as a, like an Italian sports car where when it works well, it's, it's an incredible display of efficiency. And they can put out like 10 ice cream cones in a minute with one of these things. But they just break constantly because they're very fragile and finicky and over-engineered. And you have to disassemble them every two weeks to clean them. And there are so many parts that practically nobody seems capable of reassembling it you know, reliably. There are like 20 five or more different tiny rubber O-rings that you have to put all in the correct place or it breaks. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Things like that. So this is essentially like a, it's kind of like a NASA level of complexity for an ice cream <laughs> machine. Right. And that's and, not a great idea when, you know, these are often operated by, you know, high school age teenagers who, who are not very invested in their fast food careers and don't know the ins and outs of all these technicalities. It also has two hoppers and two barrels, so you can do a milkshake and a soft serve simultaneously. Not all the machines are capable of that. Uh, the ones that they sell to McDonald's are. And then they have this four-hour cleaning process, a heat treatment. If anybody's gone to a McDonald's overnight and they say, oh, the machine's cleaning right now, this is the other thing of why they might be out of, out of service a lot of times is because they go through this rigorous four-hour cleaning treatment and if it messes up, it's got to start all over. So that's another big component to this. This heat treatment is really interesting because uh, if you don't have this kind of pasteurization feature in the machine, then the restaurant owner has to throw out all of the ice cream at the end of every day that's left in the machine. And so instead, this machine can heat it up and basically like kill all the microbes inside the mix, the ice cream mix before it's you know refrozen, wow. which is kind of gross, but also probably more sanitary than a lot of other machines. But the problem is that that, that cycle constantly fails uh, in these machines, you know, according to all the franchisees that I talk to, for reasons that are often really difficult to figure out. And when, they, when it fails, you have to start it all over. It takes four hours. There are sometimes primetime sales hours. And the error messages that the machine shows you when it fails are 
totally inscrutable sometimes. And you have to call out Taylor's technician to make sense of them. When in fact, you know, maybe it's just that you have like one inch of too much mix, like in the, in one of the hoppers, it's been overfilled just slightly. That's enough to make it break. And you have to spend hundreds of dollars to figure that out by calling a technician. And that's the kind of thing that Kitsch was designed to fix. But Taylor, you know, Kitsch at least accuses them of essentially running this racket where they basically want to make money from maintenance more than they want their machines to work. A little bit back to Jeremy O'Sullivan and how he got involved in all of this. He wanted to get in on the frozen yogurt craze, but he wanted to create an automated machine. I think early on they called it the Frobot. Uh, and what he was working with was a Taylor machine. And it started having some limited success. He got it into a few places, uh, uh, into a few football stadiums, I think it was. And then they started breaking down. He had to meet certain requirements. So this is why he kind of formed this kitsch device. And he later changed the name of the company to that. But this is why he formed that device so that he can start hacking into it and monitoring it for himself instead of having to constantly going out and making the service trips himself. Yeah, exactly. Jeremy and Melissa, their first business model was to try to create essentially like a frozen yogurt robot that would be fully automated. And it was built around a Taylor machine, like a kind of cabinet with a big screen and a credit card reader so that you could take people and real estate out of the equation and sell people frozen yogurt, just like in handles or a pink berry or whatever. But the problem was that they discovered was that they couldn't keep these Taylor machines inside of the robot running. It was just constantly breaking down. They were having to drive out to the football stadium that you referenced to rebuild the Taylor machine inside of robot all the time. And so they built this little device that essentially was their solution to try to save their business to monitor the data inside of that Taylor machine to try to figure out why it was breaking and then eventually gave up on Frobot and made that little device their entire business instead and which was a much more successful business I mean at some points they had 500 of these little kitsch devices which have a, a subscription plan inside of ice cream machines in, in McDonald's around the country they were doubling the number of them every quarter they yeah. told me and they planned yeah. to have more than a thousand by the end of 2020 um, before McDonald's and Taylor essentially cracked down on them. Right, and that's the that's the final part to this. Now, they, they had success with that kitsch device. They Franchisees were getting it. Other people that had these Taylor machines were getting it and kind of cracking the code and, and helping themselves out a little bit. But then Taylor got involved. They tried to place order for these devices. McDonald's, as you mentioned, uh, we think that a franchisee might have got the device and sent it over to Taylor and McDonald's got involved and said to send emails to their franchisees. You can't use these devices. And in the end, they essentially killed Jeremy's business with this. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it began really with Taylor trying to buy the device, probably just to check it out. Taylor is also now selling a competitive device, their own internet connected ice cream machine <laughs> right. that monitors the data in a very similar way. But it's, it's still in testing. After working on this for a very long time, a kitchen has been out for two years. Taylor still doesn't have a competitor truly on the market. But but anyway, they were trying to get their hands on a Kitsch device. Kitsch believes that, that they used private investigators to try to get one. Um, ultimately, um, they did get one. It sounds like through a franchisee who essentially Kitsch is accusing him of violating his contract by handing it over to Taylor. And he will probably be involved in this lawsuit, unfortunately for him. McDonald's, I guess, in an act of kind of loyalty to its longtime equipment supplier, Taylor, in fact, you know, sells the grills to McDonald's as well as the ice cream machine. They took Taylor's side and sent this email to every franchisee that tells them that 
catch um, breaches the confidential data of the ice cream machines and can even cause like physical injury to staff in a oh, restaurant, wow. which all the franchisees that I spoke to thought was, was pretty far-fetched. I mean, it's, it's possible this thing could, I don't know, could hurt someone if you turn an ice cream machine on remotely. But Taylor tells you to unplug it when you're working on it regardless. So, right. um, you know, if you're following that rule, then there is no <laughs> risk, I, I don't believe. Yeah. So this seems to me to be much more of like a, a heavy-handed way of killing off a competitor, but a competitor who actually was trying to make these machines work. You know, right, and, exactly. Um, if, you want, if you want McDonald's ice cream, if that's your goal, if you want to go into a McDonald's and actually be able to buy their ice cream, then it seems like a very minor tragedy that McDonald's and Taylor teamed up to destroy this little business. Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun to talk about it. Through all of the audits that have already been conducted, legitimate, independent audits of the election results that were all, you know, clear in terms of the results that this election was free of fraud. And this exercise is designed to to um, just refute that. Joining us now is Rosalind Helderman, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Rosalind. Thanks for having me. Four months into the Joe Biden presidency, we're after the 100 days and all that. We're still counting 2020 election votes. This is coming in the form of an audit in Arizona. They're recounting the ballots in Maricopa County. We have about 2.1 million ballots that they're recounting there. It's looking to be kind of a mess. There was a letter sent to the president of the Arizona Senate on behalf of the U.S. Justice Department that said that there's concerns that this audit could be out of compliance with federal laws. The Arizona Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, sent a letter also saying that there's problems that her observers have been seeing there with the way these votes are being counted, uh, uh, ballots left unattended, just kind of, a, like I said, just a general mess going on. So, Rosalind, tell us what we're seeing in Arizona with this audit. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember this is not like a real audit or a real recount. The people who are running it would not or should not be insulted if they heard me say that. They have argued that exact point in court because the Arizona Democratic Party tried to go to court and say they are not following the normal rules and laws that are in place that you have to follow that an election office would have to follow if they were conducting a recount. And what they said is this isn't a recount. Joe Biden won the election. We're not rerunning the election. This is a legislative investigation. It's being run by the state Senate, which is led by Republicans. And the goal, they claim, is to identify problems with the election system to help write future laws. And so for that reason, they don't have to follow basically any rules or guidelines, which means that they are kind of making them up as they go along. Now, they insist that they are doing the most comprehensive audit ever and that they're following really intense procedures, although they have not widely made them public. But as you mentioned, the Secretary of State's office has secured permission for some experts that she brought in from out of the state who really know how election audits are generally run to go in and see what they saw. And they identified all kinds of problems. Yeah, there's a private contractor. They're called Cyber Ninjas. They're the ones that are running this audit. And tell me a little bit about how things are going, some of these unorthodox practices. One that I've been hearing a lot about is that they're using UV lights to look at the paper. I guess there was a, a claim that some of these ballots were 
flown in from Asia, so they're looking to see if there was bamboo in the papers. I mean, this is what the officials are saying about it. I mean, they're doing a lot of different things, some of which are easier to kind of understand if you turn on. There is a live stream that runs all the time, and you can go and, and watch it. So the biggest thing they're doing is they're doing a hand recount, or at least they're trying to, of all the early 2.1 million ballots. They're moving very slowly, and their process for doing that, the experts say, is really problematic. But they're doing all kinds of other things which are far less clear, and that includes some variety of examination of the paper on which the ballots are printed, I guess, to look and see whether there is some large number that were fraudulent or smuggled in in some way. So for a time, they have now stopped, but for a time, they were shining a UV light at the ballot. We know they're also taking photos of them and using some kind of microscopic camera to study the paper fibers or the folds in the paper. They have not been incredibly clear about why they are doing those things. At one point, they said that they were looking for possible watermarks on the ballot, though county officials have said ballots in Maricopa County do not carry watermarks. And yeah, there was this sort of volunteer official who said yesterday that he was told by one worker that the thing he was hunting for was signs of bamboo in the paper because that might indicate that the ballots had been smuggled in from Asia, which there's a lot of problems with that theory. I probably right. don't have to elucidate them for your yeah. listeners, but the notion that you could tell if paper was from Asia because it contained bamboo seems highly problematic. I mean, it really seems like they're looking for anything to kind of throw a wrench in, you know, whatever the final numbers were there. The other thing that's an issue is time, because the tallying began on April 23rd. It's supposed to last till May 14th, but the location where they're counting the ballots, they have other engagements that happen days after that that uh, deadline is supposed to be, and they're moving so slow. I think by Wednesday, they only had about 200,000 that were counted they got to get 2.1 million counted. So that timing is also an issue. It's important for people to understand the reason why they are at this coliseum and the other engagement that starts on May 14th is high school graduations for kids in Phoenix. The reason they are there is because the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, which has four Republicans and one Democrat on it, so it's a Republican-led board, said they could not use county facilities. They believe that their election was accurate and fair. They've conducted uh, multiple sort of confirmational processes, audits of their own. And so they told the state Senate, you want to do this, you come get the ballots. The state Senate issued a subpoena for the ballots and you do it wherever you can find to do it. So they rented out uh, the Coliseum where the Phoenix Suns, the basketball team, used to play. But they only have that building until the 14th. And as you noted, there's no way they're going to finish all 2.1 million by the 14th. Now they're having various conversations about trying to pack everything up on the 14th, store it somewhere for some period of time, a week or more, and then come back to the Coliseum and finish. I was told just this morning that there is also another engagement for the Coliseum in early July. So even if they did that, they would only pick up the month of June and they're counting so slowly right now. It's not clear to me that they would finish even by early July. Rosalind Helderman, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.